Fred Harrison, the economist who does the impossible. If you've ever heard an economist or even a major investor talk about predicting market movements, you'll know that it's impossible. For example, Warren Buffett said, We've long felt that the only value of stock forecasters is to make fortune tellers look good. Or take Ray Dalio, leader of the best performing hedge fund in history, Bridgewater Associates. He who lives by the crystal ball will eat shattered glass. In the UK, in the aftermath of the global financial crash, Her Majesty the Queen caused a stir whilst visiting the London School of Economics. Why did no one see it, the crisis coming, she asked. Now, around the time that Queenie was causing blushes at LSE, I was dealing with my own financial storm. Not only had I failed to predict the crash, I'd gone all in and was about to lose $1 million and the family home I had built after promising my then heavily pregnant wife would never have to move again. In the aftermath of the crash, I'd watched economists and politicians be interviewed on TV say how this situation was unprecedented, that it had never happened before, and that it was impossible to have seen it coming. Not that you could tell from my actions, but I have a degree in economics. And I remember something similar happening in the 1990s, and whilst at university, I had briefly studied crashes. So I set out to see if anyone had actually seen the crash coming. Little did I know that this search would lead me to the man who is the focus of this podcast and also change my life in the process. Now, my research found very quickly that some prognosticators were right in the same way that a broken clock is right twice a day. The best example of this is Jim Rogers, who predicts a crash without fail every year. So obviously one year is going to be correct. Now, the most famous economist to have come close to predicting the crash is Nouriel Roubini, who published a paper in 2008 called The Rising Risk of a Systemic Financial Meltdown. Wynne Godley did something similar in 2007. Now, all this is decent when compared to the UK Chancellor, who literally weeks before the biggest crash in history had boasted to his fellow MPs that it ended the boom bust. Now, looking at motivated investors, Michael Burry, the hedge fund manager at Cyan Capital, the focus of the book and film The Big Short spotted things were unsustainable back in 2005 and invested accordingly. Ditto Steve Eisman. However, as far as I'm aware, neither had predicted the actual time of the crash. They could simply see that the current situation was unsustainable and Bury almost got caught out too soon as he went too early with investments and had to stop an investor revolt. John Paulson, the man who made the most money from the crash, who reputed $20 billion for his hedge fund, only moved into the markets in 2007. So full marks for spotting the changing conditions, but not so impressive in terms of foresight. Now, just when I was ready to give up, I came across a book from 2005 by a guy I'd never heard of, Fred Harrison. Fred's a London-based economist, and his 2005 book, Boom Bust, predicted the crash to the nearest quarter. Now this immediately made his prediction the best in the world in terms of one, accuracy, and two, degree of foresight, more than two years before the crash. So this would have given you time to make any changes in your investments that you would have needed. It would have allowed me to have sold our family home or even have avoided the final investment and avoided what Fred later describes in Boom Bust as the winner's curse phase. Now, most interestingly, according to all other economists, he had, he had done the impossible. So this means 
in economics terms that it either faked it or got lucky. So given that you can't fake a book publication date, he must have got lucky. So I took a deep dive into his work. Inexplicably, when I read his other works, not only had he repeated this feat, long-term accurate forecasts, he did it from further out. For example, in his book, The Chaos Makers, from 1997, he made this prediction. By 2007, Britain and most of the other industrial advanced economies will be in the throes of a frenzied activity in the land market to equal what happened in 1988-9. Land prices will be near their 18-year peak, driven by an exponential growth rate on the verge of the collapse that will presage the global depression of 2010. The two events will not be coincidental. The peak in land prices, that's in 2007, not merely signalling the looming recession, but being the primary cause of it. So in economic terms, this is the equivalent to walking on water or jumping off a building and flying unaided around the city. So somewhat interested, I got in touch with Fred and I even tried to introduce him to contacts at the Treasury, thinking that they'd be interested in speaking to him. Now that didn't work out and as you find, you'll find out in the conversation, they'd already know, knew of Fred's work and had spent 10 years ignoring him. Now back in 2009, Fred was busy making films about the crash and why it had been missed and what we could do about it in future. So I spent more time talking with his laid-back Aussie colleague, Phil Anderson. Now, Phil and I became friends and have worked together on and off for the last decade or so. And in 2020, Phil took over the publisher of Fred Books, Shepard Walwyn, after the then-publisher, Anthony Werner, a man I've come to find of great integrity and vision, who had led the company brilliantly for 40 years, wanted to ease back on his commitments. So it was with great pleasure that I accepted Phil's invitation to interview Fred about his ideas and just how he'd managed to do the impossible. I got um, inducted into the uh, concept of viewing economics through the prism of a book called Progress and Poverty, uh, purely by accident. Uh, I was uh, in the newsroom of my Fleet Street newspaper when the news editor said, go and talk to this man in Victoria, uh, he, he says he's got a story for you, for us. So I was the one chosen. I went to see him and it turned out that he didn't have a story, but he said that he was a uh, lecturer in economics at a local uh, evening class. Uh, and I thought, well, I'd like to learn about economics uh, so I went along to the class and it turned out to be the Henry George School class and that's where by accident I was introduced to the notion of economics through the prism of uh, the philosophy of Henry George who had written back in the 19th century a book called Progress and Poverty. It was pure accident as I think is the case with most people who are stumble on this idea uh, of viewing economics from a justice point of view. Uh, so I got hooked after two years of evening classes, uh, reading up on 
the way the economy apparently doesn't function in the way that it's supposed to, according to the conventional wisdom about the efficiencies of market e economics. And uh, so on my uh, travels around the world, uh, I was able to look at problems from a, a, a different perspective. Why do so many people live in slums around Cape Town, for example? Uh, what do the history books tell us? Uh, why are so many people in America uh, still dependent on food banks, the richest nation on earth? Uh, the questions kept coming and I kept digging and um, I decided to formalise my education and I left Fleet Street to go up to Oxford to do some formal studying and I spent four years there um, and then went back to Fleet Street and my old job. Uh, but I couldn't let go of what was actually a great story, this injustice. So, so you, you, that was the PPE degree, was it? I did, yeah. And I, that was, so you, you, were, you started work as a journalist, yeah. and this, was it at the Sunday People, or was this, a, was yeah, this before well, that? Yeah, I started working in the local paper in Shropshire uh, as a 16-year-old, uh, went to Fleet Street when I was 20, 21, whatever it was, uh, and um, was delighted to be doing the job I wanted to do. Uh, but there came a point where I realised that if people were going to take this idea of economic reform seriously, it had to be presented by people who were credible. Well, I'd left uh, school, a secondary modern lad with no real qualifications, and why would anybody want to listen to me? So I thought, well, I'd better get some formal education, and I went to Ruskin College to start with, and that was a two-year course for um, mature students who were members of the trade unions. So I did uh, two years of social studies and then went to University College to study PPE. Uh, I was asked would I like to study for a degree, and I decided that it would have to be Oxford or nowhere else, and Oxford accepted me to do philosophy, politics and economics. And what, why, why, would you, why would you make that conclusion? Status. People, oh, you're, you're a graduate of Oxford, that must be something significant. Right, okay. Uh, so I laid that as a condition that I would continue studying if it was in Oxford. And I moved my family up to uh, Oxford for the final two years, so I didn't leave them in London while I was studying up there and so I graduated and then I thought well I better get a doctorate and so I studied, started studying for a doctorate while still at the Sunday People which was the paper I was working for and um, but I then started writing this book that became The Power in the Land and I abandoned the doctorate in favour of completing the book. Uh, well, the research for the book uh, was based on uh, cross-examining the theory which I'd stumbled on, the Homer-Hoyt theory, uh, that Chicago land market worked in 18-year cycles. 
And so since I discovered that Hoyt was still alive, I ought to go and see him. So I tracked him down to his retirement home in Florida and uh, got a, an interview with him. I got uh, some of his works that I didn't have access to and uh, included his story in uh, The Power in the Land. Uh, that meant, that was, ironically, that was a mistake I made. Because in order to do The Power in the Land, I abandoned the doctorate that I had embarked on. I discovered a, th uh, uh, a uh, reason why population was a problem. At about that time, people were saying that the world's problems were due to overpopulation. Too many people. Well, I didn't buy the idea, but on the other hand, I had to demonstrate why there were so many people who were poor. And since I couldn't accept Malthus's explanation, which is, it's just the fault of the poor folk that they breed too much, I had to offer a theory as to why there were so many people in the world and a large proportion of them were living in poverty. And I worked out the explanation and it was, it was mainstream Henry George type theory explanation. And I thought, well, let's, let's prove it by doing a doctorate. But I abandoned the doctorate in order to write The Power in the Land. Now, the power in the land was important because it, it revealed this 18-year cycle in economic activity, but it narrowed the focus to economics. And for the next uh, 30 years, I concentrated on trying to tell people about the economic virtues of tax reform. If I had completed the doctorate, then I would have gone into the sociology and the psychology uh, of uh, an unjust world and uh, I would have developed literature that was, would have been more broadly based in those early decades. What I did in that book was to rescue a theory that was actually written in the 1930s by a man called Homer Hoyt. He had identified 18-year property cycles in the Chicago land market, but that got basically forgotten by mainstream economists, they weren't interested. Uh, at the time that I wrote the book, I didn't understand why that was so, um, but uh, the Hoyt thesis just got abandoned. So when I uh, came across it, I thought, well, does this notion of an 18-year periodicity apply everywhere under all conditions? Because if so, here was the tool for uh, persuading governments that, that were rational that we could avoid the next recession because we could time it. So that's why I studied this 18-year uh, thesis in relation to different cultures like Japan, different parts of the world like Australia, uh, and uh, examined UK history as well as the broader US uh, economic uh, trends, not just Chicago, and sure enough, the pattern of 18 years persisted in all these 
different cultures and uh, geographical regions. So it was a robust proposition. And so the book was published in 1983, uh, and I'd worked out that the timetable was such that if there was going to be another 18-year end of cycle, it would be in 1992, which it was. So the theory stood up to empirical testing. I wonder if we'd like to, if you'd be willing to go back to when you first met Anthony Werner. Well, I embarked on the writing of the book, or what I eventually called The Power in the Land, and uh, it needed to be published, and uh, uh, I was introduced to Anthony Werner, um, and uh, he didn't hesitate, but agreed to publish it. Uh, it seemed a, as though it would be a commercial success, uh, and so, um, we uh, wrestled over what to call it and came up with a power in the land. So the Corruption of Economics came out in 1994. What was your intention? One of our most distinguished economists in America uh, was Mason Gaffney, who died only quite recently, unfortunately, into his 90s. He devoted his life to the study of the economics of Henry George. And he had uh, an intimate awareness of the way in which academia had shaped people's attitudes on economics by progressively expunging the knowledge that land is significantly different from other assets, uh, rent is a social revenue, and that uh, in order to base society on the principles of fairness, we needed to reform the tax regime. So I wanted to collaborate with Mason Gaffney in, in telling this story about the history of the way economics had been skewed away from uh, the theory of rent and land uh, in order to protect those who were reaping the benefits of privatizing uh, the rental income. It was vital to document that episode in order to justify the claim that there was a deliberate, that an intentional skewing of people's understanding of the way the world worked. This was mind manipulation. Well, that sounds like a conspiracy theory, and people tend to be skeptical of conspiracy theories unless you can document it in fine detail, which is what Mason Gaffney was able to do. So that removed from uh, the debate the accusation that, oh, you're throwing out these ideas of uh, mind control uh, with no evidence to support it. No, you want the evidence? Read uh, The Corruption of Economics. Gaffney has uh, documented in fine detail the process from the end of the 19th century where, they where academics in places like Chicago deliberately started to play down the significance of land and rent. Having established that uh, level of evidence, we can now look at the statements being made today by uh, senior uh, academic economists and see the connection. So today, economists argue that although, yes, it's a good idea 
to collect some of the revenue from uh, the rent of land. They say, but of course, either it's difficult to separate land value from people's wages or profits, or if they admit you can do it, they say, but it won't raise much revenue. Uh, so why bother? Why take the trouble? This, this is all designed to discourage the policymaker in government from embarking on a shift in the nature of the way they raise revenue. Because if they can't raise much, or if it's difficult to do, let's get on with some other problem. Uh, and so the connection between today and what happened more than a hundred years ago is clearly defined. Well, so that was uh, the purpose of the corruption of economics. Well, hope you've enjoyed the first in the Fred Harrison series of podcasts. In the next one, Fred goes into more detail about how we could actually solve our economic and societal challenges.